Welcome to Cryptic, the Carlton Research Practice of Teaching Collaborative. My name is Federica Goffi and I'm the co-chair of the PhD program in architecture at the Azrieli School of Architecture and Urbanism. And today, March 11, 2021, we are conducting an interview with Dr. Mark Dorian, Forbes Chair in Architecture at Azala Edinburgh College of Art. And our interviewers are Warren Borg, Damiano Aiello, and Serkan Tekan, who are PhD students in our school and myself. So welcome, Professor Dorian, and thank you for thank the you. opportunity. So Warren has the first question. Hi, I'm Warren Borg, and I'll start off with the first question. What, what role does architecture play in today's contemporary culture? Does digital presence impact our worldview and its relation to architecture? Okay, thanks. Thanks, uh, Warren. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a sort of big and quite a complicated question, uh, really. Um, I mean, I, I suppose one of the things that I would like to um, stress, so the position that I would take in relationship to this is um, I would want to sort of stress or make a claim for the importance of architecture as a kind of site of, of thinking about contemporary culture and uh, architecture as a uh, as kind of lo you know, locus or Topoi, um, uh, which uh, has a has an important uh, and interesting position in relationship to um, kind of broader areas than architecture itself, uh, because I think that um, one of the things that we experience as scholars or students or uh, participants in one way or another in architecture is that it's a um, Kind of site or location um, upon which a lot of other things converge and find some kind of meeting point or uh, point of interaction. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why um, architecture has become such an important location for uh, thinking by scholars who themselves in a disciplinary sense aren't necessarily situated within architecture. So if one thinks about the work of a scholar like Frederick Jameson, for example, and the role that architecture came to play in his theorization of postmodernism, or you know, writers like Andreas Hoysen, uh, or you know, many, many philosophers as well, for whether you know Peter Sloterdijk or Giorgio Agamben, etc. Architecture constantly kind of reappears as uh, an important area, site of consideration. And I think that's very much because of its relationality that you know in architecture or at at the point of architecture we see um, things being brought into uh, very sort of explicit kinds of relation with one another in a kind of readable way. So you know uh, politics, material, philosophy, questions of social disciplines, sanitation, legal questions, environmental questions, all converge in a way around the side issues around infrastructure. Uh, and so, so the, the big answer is that, uh, you know, to the question, what role does architecture play today in today's contemporary culture? I think it, it plays um, an important role, not just in terms of buildings and, you know, what architecture does as a practice uh, of um, thinking about buildings, constructing buildings uh, in forms of environmental construction, but also as a as a um, as a uh, as a site of 
of thinking about culture itself uh, and as a kind of symptomatic side, I suppose. Um, does digital presence impact our worldview and, and its relationship to architecture? Um, yes, uh, no, I think absolutely it does. And I think, um, I think that's probably something that we'll uh, talk about in connection with some of the other questions that will come up as we move through. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Damiano, and uh, it is a real pleasure to meet you, even if not in person. Uh, first, I also uh, would like to thank you for taking your time to, to have this interview with us today. My first question is a bit general and is related to architecture education. I would like to know um, what does it mean to teach architecture today and what is the pedagogical role of um, the architecture teacher? Yes, I think this is this is also an interesting question and um, is sort of multifaceted. Uh, on one hand, I think it touches on the question of the complexity of of architecture again as a topic, and I think this relates to the uh, you know to the to the question that Warren raised as well. So it's interesting, I think, you know. It's an interesting question what an architectural curriculum looks like or should look like today and where architectural training or architectural education begins and ends. I mean, what, what should it include? What, uh, what, what needs to be there? What, uh, how do we um, encompass or you know, place limits upon this? It's interesting, I suppose, that the history of architecture as a discipline has been sort of marked by one of, um, almost a kind of impossible multiplicity. And it's there right at the start. I mean, in the famous litany, um, in Vitruvius's famous litany of things that an architect has to know, it seems that an architect has to sort of encompass virtually every other discipline. And somehow it's, you know, this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, this, this converges and defines, um, you know, the, the field of knowledge and spread of knowledge of the, uh, of the architect, even really from the earliest, um, point. So, uh, and I think if anything that has become more complicated and architecture's difficult relationship with um, pedagogical institutions and the uh, con conventional uh, classifications in traditional universities um, has been, I mean, I would think probably perhaps more than any other subject, architecture has found itself sort of shifting faculties and locations and identities within the um, uh, within the within higher education ever since it um, uh, sort of emerged as a as a topic that was taught within universities. So, um, so I think one answer to the question of what does it mean to teach architecture today means that. I think it sort of it has to entertain this as a as a problem. Uh, it has to entertain the question of um, uh, what we need to know and what we need to be responsive to, and how we um, kind of you know encourage and foster a form of education and of thinking about uh, what it is to. Uh, work within the field of architecture that is always um, uh, open to this kind of complexity and the you know the porosity of the of the discipline itself. From some points of view, it, it seems a very very highly codified and specific discipline related to a particular 
professional qualifications, professional accreditations, etc. But from another point of view, um, that is then sort of positioned within a, a you know much much more complex and expansive field. I think I would also say that I mean I'm. It's always been of concern and interest to me the way architecture sort of equips us to do things that, from some points of view, look beyond architecture as well, and not so much to do with architecture. I mean, what is a kind of cultural criticism that comes out of architecture? That we've talked a little bit about how other scholars have drawn upon architecture in formulating or thinking about particular kinds of arguments or um, uh, developing particular interpretations of cultural formations. I think it's it's always an interesting question. How does that go the other way as well? You know, what what how does um, how how does an architectural training sort of equip us as both citizens but cultural critics and and uh, reflective and critical actors in the you know societies and environments in which we engage? So I think an education that sort of holds these questions open and that is constantly um, stimulating reflection on them is is uh, is really crucial thank you um well the first part of the interview will be focused on the phd in architecture at the um, edinburgh school of architecture and landscape architecture at the university of edinburgh i'd like to start by asking you if uh, you can tell us about your role as forbes chair in architecture yes cer certainly um well, the, the Forbes chair is an endowed chair at the University of Edinburgh, and um, it doesn't it doesn't really come with a particular um, set of duties attached to the chair. So what I do as Forbes chair are more, is, is more to do with the um, the kinds of interest and, um, you know, I suppose expertise that I um, you know that 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 I, I I try to sort of put into play. So I've been involved with um, I've constantly been involved with with studio teaching, with sort of running um, uh, and teaching design studios, uh, and this has um, sort of taken place both at both at Master of Architecture level. By by Master of Architecture in Edinburgh, I mean um, uh, the second part of the professional program. So in British architectural education, there are two degrees that come one after the other that are linked to the process of professional accreditation. So the Master of Architecture is the second degree uh, within, within that. And sometimes people go directly from Master of Architecture to PhD. You can, it's possible to make that, it's possible to make that transition. Um, but I also uh, have taught undergraduate uh, at um at times uh as well in particular studios um i've also been involved in you know constantly in teaching architectural architectural theory or cultural theory um the the form that that has taken has uh sort of changed um depending well as the programs in the school and the courses in the school have developed uh, so at the moment, I, re I, I run a, a theory course called reading dot dot dot, and each year the dot 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 is filled in with a different um, kind of corpus of, of work. So we, uh, it's, it's a one semester seminar and it's based around a corpus of texts by a particular uh, writer or thinker. Uh, and 
the seminars are run so that there's a piece of writing by the, the person we're looking at, but there's also some text to set alongside that. It might be a text that's specifically engaging with the, the writer's text, or it might be something that seems just interesting to think alongside that. So that's something I do as well. And then I have a, um, a kind of long history of PhD supervision, both through thesis and by design uh, routes. Um, and as part of that also, I've been involved with uh, sort of many external PhD programs as well, both as an external examiner and sometimes as a, um, in a kind of an advisory capacity. So I, for example, I acted as the chair of a national review of doctoral programs in Sweden, uh, in doctoral programs in architecture in Sweden recently. Um, and I suppose the other aspect of the role of the Forbes chair is that, um, you know, I'm often a point of interaction between the university and other agencies outside the um, outside the university. Yeah. Thank you very much. So uh, we have a series of questions about your PhD program in architecture and we were wondering if you can share with us a little bit about its history. Also I guess in the broader context of other PhD program in architecture in the UK. Yeah so that's that's an interesting question and one that I, I don't necessarily know a huge amount about. Um, Partly because the um, so, so the Edinburgh School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture was uh, came into being in its current form about ten years ago, and this was the result of the merger of two schools that had existed before: one at the University of Edinburgh and one at Edinburgh College of Art. Uh, so before the merger, I had been um, involved at the architecture school at the university. Of Edinburgh. Um, Isala is, is also within the university. It was basically a sort of, um, um, there was a bigger um, merger of the two institutions where the entirety of the art college uh, came to be a separate school uh, within, with, uh, with, within Edinburgh, within, within Edinburgh University. And because there were two architecture schools in the city. There was a, um, a kind of merging of the two schools at that point. Um, there's a kind of complicated story about landscape architecture, um, which uh, a long time ago in the, I'm sort of guessing a bit, but either in the 50s or 60s, um, I think started at the University of Edinburgh and then sort of went across to Edinburgh College of Art and has now come back again. So, um, so the PhD programs in Asala have been, um, I mean, the first award to an Asala PhD was about 10 years ago, but the history of doctoral study in architecture in Edinburgh goes back to, I think the late 1950s, um, when the, uh, I think pretty much the first uh, doctoral um, um, student graduated, uh, I think in the late 1950s. So, um, the, the School of Architecture in the university was, uh, was founded only a, a small number of years before that under the auspices of, a, of an Edinburgh-based architect called Sir Robert Matthew. Um, the history of relations to other programs in the UK, I'm 
not really that sure about. I mean, we have um, we have a lot of in, informal or occasional relations that come from um, members of staff involved or supervisors involved at other schools who come to act as external examiners. Uh, and likewise, my, I myself and other colleagues at Edinburgh are often involved in um, external, exa external examining in other schools in the UK. Um, and often, well, not often, but occasionally that's not just purely in architecture as well. So I'm about to do an examination in literature, for example, at the University of Cambridge. I've done examinations for, uh, for art practice-based PhD. PhDs and I've done examinations in, in media studies as well. So there's some, um, I mean, depending on the topic of the PhD, there is um, um, some flexibility and sort of movement ar around these. I think in particular, we have probably strong relationship with UCL, with the Bartlett um, School of Architecture. And um, uh, I think I've probably examined eight or nine PhDs there in the past and likewise um, we have uh, quite a um, there's quite a track record of Bartlett staff members who have acted as external who've acted as external examiners here in Edinburgh. Thank you very much. Next question is uh, what, what makes your PhD in architecture program distinct from others internationally? How do you see the program growing in 10 years? So that's kind of a difficult question to answer. I think um, we um, so, so the PhD program is quite is quite large. We have we have about ninety students on program, ninety doctoral students on program across all the um, across all the divisions, and within that, within Edinburgh College of Art, uh, Isala is by far and away the largest. Um, graduate school and has the largest number of PhD students. So these are 90 students in a sala, not, not just across ECA. Um, so, uh, and there are, different, there are different stages of their study. So it's a different kind of setup uh, to the, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how the arrangement is in Carleton, but certainly, for example, schools in the, uh, in the US that I'm familiar with where the um, PhD numbers are relatively small and they're generally funded places that are funded through um, the presence of other students in the school. Um, it's, it's completely, that's a completely different kind of setup to the arrangements um, here where uh, we, many students who come to study here bring uh, funding with them from uh, scholarships that they've acquired from their own countries uh, often. We have a small number of, um, of grants that are available, uh, but we also have, have teaching uh, programs so we can help to offset students' costs through teaching assistantships and through um, other activities that they can undertake. Uh, at the university. I think the character of the work, um, I mean, I suppose I'm saying this because um, with 90 students, it's it's hard to say that the PhD program has a specific ca character in the way that it might do if, um, 
one has a much smaller number of students and um, maybe a more limited range of material uh, or more depending on how one wants to put it, either more limited or more focused range. Um, but um, we have a great diversity of, uh, of work that's being done with very, very different methodological approaches and quite often quite strong but collegial uh, disagreements among staff about um, uh, uh, the values and the importance of particular kinds of approaches and questions and methodologies. So I would say that the character of the work comes, comes, out, uh, comes out most uh, primarily through the supervisory team that is put together rather than through the character of the program itself. And um, we try to, um, I mean normally um, there would be two supervisors, uh, so the system we have is that there would be two, <coughs> excuse me, two supervisors inside Isala, but sometimes there may be, sometimes the second supervisor may come from uh, another subject area. So one of my students recently, uh, who has just been examined actually, um, was co-supervised by myself and by the um, uh, kind of professor in Chinese uh, at, at the University of Edinburgh. So uh, basically we're always trying to put the best um, supervisory team together based on the particular um, topic of the study. At times it might be possible to have a third external supervisor, though that uh, can be institutionally complex depending on the on the on the setup. In terms of in terms of how the program grows over 10 years, um, it's difficult for me to imagine it growing in terms of numbers anymore. I mean I think we're pretty much at capacity. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the sort of political news in the UK, but obviously we've been through this um, so-called Brexit process where we're now no longer in the European Union and uh, that has effects on funding that is available to students, you know, specifically European students to uh, come to Edinburgh um, and we're uh, everything's a little bit up in the air about that at the moment we're not really sure how this will uh, de develop. Um, I would like to try to find more ways that we can more actively help funding students from internally in the university um, but um, uh, yeah, but that's the that's the kind of prospect at the moment. I mean, we we enjoy very much the diversity of students at the school and the diversity of the work that's done. And uh, I think something that's happened over the past ten years is that there's been much more integration of the kind of presence of PhD students in the life of the school than there was um, before, when PhD studies tended to be, tended to be a more sort of separate kind of co um, cohort. Uh, as an addendum to the question, uh, I know you said there is 90 students in the program, but how many students do you admit per year on average? So the number of students we admit is obviously based on two things, the quality of the applications we get and supervisory capacity. Um, I would imagine 
it's in the region of 15 to 20 students per year. I, could, I mean, it would be interesting to check actually what the profile has been over the past, um, say, five years or so, but I would imagine it's around that. Hello. So I was, I was just wondering what you thought of, um, um, like, what has changed and remained the same and how architecture was th is thought of and how does this affect uh, the pedagogy uh, and how it's structured? What do you think the fundamentals are? Like across time, and 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 what aren't the fundamentals, in a sense, in relation to PhDs or to architecture? Just in general, yeah. In general, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think that um, I mean in the UK, um, and I'm sure it's there's a similar situation in Canada. Um, we have all the schools um, that you know whose programs are professionally accredited have to submit to a validation to an uh, accreditation system and in a way that has a particular that that's a that's a kind of necessity and that's a in a certain ways a kind of shifting shifting kind of format of how the institutional body understands itself and understands the practice and the training for the practice of architecture at, at a particular at a particular time but there's a, there is a kind of stability uh about that in relationship to um um sort of questions of uh kind of competence in uh and skill in relationship to um architectural composition design technical questions structures environmental uh issues and the and the and the emphasis you know shifts a little bit from time to time but i think the experience has been that that relationship to the profession gives a kind of um you know constant constancy in a way to um how uh certainly the way the professional program runs because what we we're given a list of things that are called kind of prescription criteria, which basically says what we the, the competence the competencies that students have to have when they graduate, and we have to demonstrate to the uh, professional body how these are delivered through the teaching we do, and so we have to do a kind of mapping exercise where we distribute these across the curriculum that students have, uh, and then we're visited, you know, to some of the standard of the work is examined and and um and and as i say obviously some uh some of the emphases change uh across time and the 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 context of the climate emergency for example is obviously something that is um, you know has brought issues around um around energy and decarbonization etc to the fore so that's something that's um you know, that's very much in the in the in the foreground at the at the moment, but then but then around that uh, there is um, you know a, a lot of um, in some ways more sort of less instrumental, more open and speculative thinking that in turn both has an effect upon I mean culture in a broader cultural sense it has an effect on how the profession understands itself. Um, but it also has an effect internally in school uh, on how we might think about configuring responses to particular dem you know, demands that have been made. And I think that's one of the points at which the 
interaction of PhD students with the, or at least the broader interaction of PhD students with um, sort of teaching in studios now has been kind of quite interesting because they um, they bring um, there are more um, kind of diverse and multiplicitous range of perspectives that are uh, that you know that feed in, um, and even if these aren't necessarily always materialized in course documents or briefs given to students or curriculums. They're there in conversations and they're there in you know, reviews and they become part of the uh, part of the conversation and, and can't have, can, I mean, sometimes the effects take some time to sort of work through in school, but um, yeah, but I think that's been important. Thank you for that. We were wondering if you could share with us some of the research approaches and areas of research expertise in your program. And I imagine that with 19 students, it might be quite diverse. So I don't know if you, if you can talk about that or maybe speaking about your own students perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll try to, uh, to give some sort of insight. I mean, but the, the, the PhD program is, um, so within Asala, I think I should probably say, first of all, maybe you know this from what you've seen, but uh, I think there are, there are four divisions. There is uh, PhD in architecture, a PhD by design, PhD in cultural studies, and PhD in, lands, in landscape. Uh, so, uh, and, and these are all, I mean, even the cultural studies one are all sort of, um, held within the broad range of concerns that operate within Sala. Now within architecture, so, so, so PhD architecture would be one, you know, is one division of that. And maybe, again, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit, but I would think it's probably maybe, um, maybe getting on to for something like 50%, maybe 60% of the PhD students currently enrolled might be in the architecture um, division. Um, and most of the most of the uh, students who are working on historical subjects would would be in architecture would be uh, uh, would uh, would be located in PhD in architecture um, or um, theory uh, related um, topics or um, sometimes topics that may be um, related more to architecture's interaction with other media. Um, it depends a little bit on the kind of, again, the specific supervisory relations um, that, that helps inform exactly which, you know, one of the divisions that they're in. Um, to talk about my students, um, I, uh, I mean, just maybe to give you some sort of sense about the range of topics that I'm involved in supervising. So, so one recently graduated student uh, was working on, um, she produced a, a PhD called the, um, the Politics and Poetics of Withdrawal in um, mid 17th century China. And this was sort of looking at um, the vicissitudes, the kind of dilemmas of the literati at the period of dynastic change between the Ming and Qing dynasties and how the, 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 the kind of traumatic event of dynastic change was sort of mediated through particular cultural forms through kind of three case studies that she looked at. Uh, this is a project that's recently been completed. Uh, another student was working on the uh, contemporary politics of immersion 
immersive design. Looking, uh, this was looking across um, kind of theatrical productions, media design, um, but also um, one of the chapters was looking closely at drone um, cabins and the design of drone ca um, cabins, and also um, immersive military uh, immersive technologies that were produced for military therapeutic um, purposes, or at least from you know for therapeutic games in military contexts. Um, another student again recently completed was looking at the, at the history of the Fun Palace. So the project, famous project by Cedric Price and Joan Littlewood. Um, but this was more from the point, I mean, the Fun Palace in architectural discourse is always strongly associated with Cedric Price, but the project was uh, uh, the, the the motivation behind the project came from the radical English um, uh, theatrical director and producer, Joan Littlewood, who uh, formed the um, uh, theatre workshop and uh, became director of the, the Theatre Royal. And, and so this is a kind of alternative history of the Fun Palace, which is actually, which extends, uh, so it's a much broader and more complex story than the uh, than the building that uh, that was developed by Price and Frank Newby and uh, Gordon Pask and others. It, it was a much, much longer project um, for Littlewood that involved um, many other events and many different kinds of media actually over a period of, um, from the early 1960s, uh, certainly to the mid seventies. Um, um, other, um, um, so two PhD by design projects are, there's one that's working on the, um, the, the history of the island, of island thinking, of the island as kind of speculative and experimental top, topoi. Um, and there's um, one that's, um, actually this is not a PhD by design, but a um, PhD by thesis, there's one that's looking at, at the, um, uh, archive of the the architectural research unit, um, which was a an initiative developed by Florian Bagel at um, what became uh, North London University, uh, and this is Bagel's archive is currently going to the an institution called Drawing Matter in Somerset and to the Victorian Albert Museum and to the Royal um, Royal Institute of British Architects. And there's a, um, this is a project that's just beginning that um, is looking at um, trying to develop uh, kind of alternative ways of classifying and reading the archive through practices of drawing within, within it. Thank you very much. So we wanted to ask you, I guess in your school, what differentiates the PhD in architecture from the PhD by design? And eventually, regarding the PhD by design, what are the unique aspects uh, that perhaps differentiated from other PhD by design in the UK, for example? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the I think the short answer to that is that um, the key the key differentiation between PhD by design and and a, a primarily a written discursive PhD is that. Um, Design, design practice becomes the uh, the central mode of um, of 
of research, you know, through which the research is 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 developed. Now, writing is also uh, and scholarly reflection is also an important part of this. So there are substantial written components to PhD by design as as, um, as well, where the design practice is in you know runs in parallel with the process of writing and reflecting and um, researching on material that is related to the design. Um, in terms of the supervision of this, I mean, I always um, really try to uh, establish a process through which the first moves in the research are made through through design, through the establishment of a, of a design inquiry um, that, that, that begins or sets the, sets the work in, in motion. Uh, so what we get to by the end is usually a kind of, um, sort of oscillation between periods of the research that have developed through a kind of design inquiry and then periods of writing which have reflected upon those developed forms of historical and critical research that interact with them, but also establish directions and orientations for the subsequent um, development of design acts. And so this is then, um, uh, one of the things that this also does is that it sort of it escapes some of the standard formatting of the PhD um, that is, uh, Typically, you know, typically required or 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 demanded, so we can have so, so the design of the the design of the thesis document itself becomes part becomes conceptually part of the of the uh, of the work, and the work is usually examined um, in parallel with a major exhibition of the design work that has been produced. So typically, there would be um, the, typically the examination would would be held in the exhibition space. And uh, there would be a period of time in which the examiners, uh, I mean, they will have seen the design work as it's reproduced in the thesis, but there will be a period of time of the viewing of the exhibition. And then the, uh, the examination is then, is then uh, held within the, um, within, the, within, within the exhibition space. Um, how, it's, how it's differentiated uh, from other PhDs by design is, again, I think, I think primarily through the supervisory impetus and the kinds of knowledges uh, that the supervisors bring, and the, um, uh, you know, not to say the, you know, and of course the the research question itself that is coming from the student and and that is being that is being that is being pursued. Um, I think again, it's very difficult to. It's not a. Um, it's not a program that's very strongly. I think, I think it's got strongly formatted, but it's not strongly um, directed in the sense of being able to say, well, this is a sort of particular topic that that we explicitly want to examine, or that you know that uh, a certain tradition of um, of exploration of has developed at. Edinburgh. I think it's um, it's much more directed by the student and through the interlocution and dialogue with the supervisors. Um, and again, I think it, it, it becomes a little bit 
difficult to say, um, you know, so it becomes difficult to say how the program itself differentiates, uh, you know, is differentiated from comparable programs. Uh, I think the, the differentiate, the, the primary differentiation occurs really at the level of the, of the research project itself. Uh, I mean, certainly there are strong, I think there are strong um, comparisons that can be made between the approach at, at something like ECL and at Edinburgh. And again, there's quite a lot of exchange between the programme. Um, I think in a more, you know, in a more sort of international context, it's it's probably easier to differentiate it in relationship to sort of programmes such as the RMIT programme, which is, which tends to have been built up around the um, around work that was already done or existing work which um, people entering the program brought to the school and then we conceptualized <clears throat> in the context of the PhD um, program I think we would always want to insist that um, the PhD itself should be a transformative experience for the student and it's a space where one uh, extends and embarks on uh, uh, a kind of um, uh, a new, you know, a new, a new inqu inquiry. We're obviously interested in the expertise that people bring and the capacities that people bring, but um, we want to uh, strongly emphasise the exp exploratory character of the PhD um, of PhD studies. Thank you very much. Mm. So I guess, you know, considering the range of PhD research and also programs uh, in, you know, different programs uh, in your school, if you were to locate the students' contribution to knowledge, would we find these in writings, but also other media such as drawings or design? And in other words, is the specificity of the research medium recognized and understood differently in the different programs when it comes to identifying where the contribution is made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it. Uh, I think it. It is, and the PhD by design uh, program, the, the 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 design work itself, the creative practice work itself, is understood as um, the kind of primary output, the primary contribution. But at the same time, um, it has to be it has to be theorized and critically positioned and thought about. So. Um, so it it is um, closely it closely interacts with uh, a reflective textual output as well as well, and we see that in the um, in the kind of publications that come out of the um, you know that come out, that come out of the work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the. <laughs> Thank you. The, Thank you. Um, could you discuss with us the objectives of Atelier Metis and the research methodologies adopted? And uh, I would also like to know if there is any relationship between the Atelier and the PhD program. Um, yeah, sure. So there's um, there's no explicit connection between the um, uh, uh, between Metis and the the PhD by Design program, although uh, a lot of the students that have come to enter the PhD uh, by design program know, uh, know our work well and um, 
have been familiar with that coming, you know, coming through the school. I mean, sometimes uh, students from outside have come specifically um, because they know the work and because they um, they want to interact with us and interact. I mean, there's the ideas behind the work or the ideas that drive the work or the approach. So it's informal. I mean, there is a connection, but it, it's in, it's informal. It's not it's not um, explicitly stated in the program or explicitly linked. Uh, uh, into that in 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 any in any formal way, um, the the kind of objectives really where um, uh, we I, I founded Metis with Adrian Hawker at the university um, I can't, <laughs> a long time ago now I can't remember the exact date but it was um, yeah it was really I mean it's it's um, it's it's almost too um, sort of too long ago to think about um, but I suppose we were. Um, interested in trying to sort of find a crossing point where um, <clears throat> we could link uh, a, a, a kind of practice that was done in the academy with architectural teaching and, <clears throat> excuse me, architectural te teaching and research. And it was at a period at which there was a new um, a kind of research audit regime called, which was that, at that time called the research assessment exercise that all universities in the UK had to submit to and uh, a substantial part of universities funding and also their sort of related prestige uh, came from the, uh, was linked to the research return that they made. And one of the things that this happened to do, uh, this tended to do was to um, squeeze the possibility of any kind of practice within the um, institution because um, it was very hard for uh, say previous generations of teachers who had been also involved in practices in the city or in practice, you know, practices outside the university to retain uh, a kind of foothold or presence <clears throat> within the university and within teaching whenever there was such um, extreme pressure then being placed on uh, textual outputs. Uh, one of the things that the research assessment exercise did was that it really privileged textual output over, over design work. It was very, um, there was something of a kind of cultural battle to try to have um, any kind of research, any, any kind of practice or practice-based work understood as research at all. Uh, and I think the founding of the PhD programs and the general uh, emergence of a discourse around um, practice-based research was very much a response to these uh, these shifting conditions within uh, within UK universities, at least as they were experienced by architecture schools. Um, Adrian and I, Adrian Hawker, uh, my colleague, um, and I wrote a a kind of nerdy sort of position piece on this called it's called something like the Tortoise, the Scorpion, and the Horse: Partial Notes on Research, Teaching, and Practice, which is published in the Journal of Architecture, um, which sort of sets out our position on that at the time. Um, so it was, it was kind of, it was, it was driven by that and it was driven by, um, uh, you know, concerns like this. But I think also more fundamentally, it was just um, driven by a, a kind of, um, the feeling that this is important, a, a kind of enthusiasm and uh, a desire to, uh, develop this kind of work and to explore it in relationship to 
the kinds of um, projects, studio projects that we might set and the kind of supervision that we might do as well. Again, it's very informal. I mean, it was a, in a sense a vehicle for us to explore explore ideas through through you know through design based work and and to be honest um i mean we've always you know there's never been enough time and space to do it in the university we've always sort of experienced it as a kind of um in a way something that was done in in spite of the institutional conditions that we were in rather than being sort of particularly facilitated by it but again, as the sort of discourse on um, design research grew um, and uh, developed, and uh, it's, I think, became increasingly recognised, and it's you know it's importance became increasingly, uh, yeah, recognised. But but it's it's something that is you know fundamentally just driven by enthusiasm and um, a kind of sort of <laughs> a kind of, um, what's the word, uh, ill-informed Ill or sort of headstrong um, uh, wish to, to pursue this kind of work. Right. Um, in asking about your work, uh, you, wrote, you wrote about the concept of an adisciplinarity approach to architecture. However, the Edinburgh College of Arts webpage, Architecture and PhD, introduced the, the prospect of cross-disciplinary exploration and research. Is there a gap between the school's mandate and your own research? And can you tell, tell us more about your concept of adisciplinarity? Uh, yes, uh, sure, yes. No, there's absolutely a gap between the, school, <laughs> the school's mandate and my own research. Um, so, so I think this is an interesting question for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's actually very, very difficult uh, for an institution to present itself in terms of some sort of concept of a disciplinarity. And I think that was one of the uh, things about it that was interesting to me. So, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a long background to this, uh, or lots of, at least a, a, a long story um, to, to this. And partly it was stimulated by my own frustrations uh, about, uh, in relation to experiencing so-called uh, cross-disciplinarity or interdisciplinarity in, um, in academic contexts. What I was finding, I mean, a lot, a lot of my work, um, a lot of my early writing was interacting with other disciplinary areas than architecture. And a lot of the early publications are not in architectural publications, but they're in other, other journals, Journal of Narrative Theory and Word and Image and things like this. Um, and I was involved in things like the Institute for Advanced Studies in Edinburgh, which is a, um, uh, a kind of uh, humanities, social sciences, um, research center uh, where many different you know, disciplines and interests come together. And I was interacting with people in you know, literature and philosophy and politics, economics, etc. Um, but I was increasingly finding that um, if I was 
if I was involved in applying for a grant or something like that for uh, a cross-disciplinary project, what it constantly required, what it meant by cross, what it meant by cross-disciplinarity was the construction of a team of figures who represented very specific disciplinary identities. So here was an anthropologist, here was somebody from political science, here was somebody from, I don't know, social psychology, something like that, here was somebody from architecture. I was finding that what uh, the discourse of cr cross-disciplinarity did was it actually entrenched disciplinary identities and that it kind of confiscated the possibility of actually writing in a cross-disciplinary way out of one's own out of one's own discipline. And I was also finding that um, that so-called well, cross-disciplinarity, interdisciplinarity was being was associated in certain theorizations of what these were with post-structuralism, post-structuralist thinking. And this seemed to me to be wrong. Um, I, I felt that there was something else uh, going on there, or something else to be said. And I had an invitation um, from uh, John, John McCarthy and Andrew Leach in, in Australia to contribute to an event that they were putting together called Architecture, Disciplinarity and the Arts. And uh, so I said to them, well, I'd like to sort of explore this, uh, an idea of a disciplinarity, which I hadn't come across or hadn't seen before. I hadn't seen mention of it made before, but it seemed to me to be a term that seemed closer to the implications of the thinking, thinking associated with post-structuralism. Than anything like uh, um, cross-disciplinarity or interdisciplinarity, and so, so to give you to give you an illustration of that, um, I was struck, for example, by I mean, there's a famous um, uh, there's a famous statement by Foucault at the start of uh, the Archaeology of Knowledge, where he kind of reflects on the writing of the writing of the book and his approach. And in the archeology span of knowledge, he's, he's kind of reflecting on um, a number of previous books that he had written and sort of you know, asking what he did in, <coughs> in writing those. And there's a section where he says, um, you know, I'm not the only one who writes. I mean, he says something like this. I'm not the only one who writes to skip my name, to skip who I am. You know, do not ask me, when I uh, do not ask me who I am, do not ask me to identify myself, uh, leave that to the police and or something, uh, at least spare us their morality when we write. And I mean, if that's emblematic of a kind of post-structural structure's position, it's not about some sort of warm, cuddly, conflated, offhebung sublimation of the disciplines into something that's united or kind of joined together, it's actually the constant refusal of any disciplinary position, saying I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. Um, likewise, there are a number of st statements by, by Derrida, which um, are, I mean, the implications I think are uh, pretty much the same. So, and the way I could then sort of formulate or think about this was to, was through the through the Grimassian semiotic square that, um, you know, famous use of it is obviously Rosenkreuz's sculpture in the expanded field. But one of the things that that diagram does is that it, it sort of formed a way 
of allowing a kind of thinking of where cross-disciplinarity or interdisciplinarity might sit in relation, <clears throat> in relation to something like a disciplinarity. So where cross-disciplinarity is some kind of combinative position, uh, a disciplinarity is a position of exclusion in relationship to the, the neutral position at the bottom of the square. Now, I think it's very difficult for a university or an educational program to sell itself on those terms. I don't think it's any kind of surprise that we find, uh, you know, uh, such sort of positive terms like cross-disciplinarity, interdisciplinarity being used to advertise a, um, uh, a, a kind of graduate program or advanced studies in the, you know, in the humanities. So, um, so, so that, that piece of writing was a kind of an exploration of what I saw was a sort of vacant term in the discussions around disciplinarity that had yet to be conceptually filled out. And it was an attempt to uh, make some kind of um, argument around that. But at the same time, I must admit, it's one that I'm, you know, rather sort of interested in and attracted to. And partly because um, of, of quite an, an early encounter with Louis Myran's um, book, Utopics, Spatial Play, which absolutely sort of turns on a conceptualization of, of neutrality. And then this kind of reappears uh, later in, you know, Roland Barthes' last, um, I think actually his only um, lecture course at the Collège de France, uh, which was on the neutral, which was the, um, uh, the, the lecture series that he he uh, he gave before he died. But whenever that book appeared, I really sort of found a lot in that as well. That um, which I mean, uh, um, I I didn't the the book I don't think feeds into the um, the SCNA disciplinarity, but it's something that I've um, uh, it's it's the, the thinking is very closely connected to it, and it's something that I've um, you know looked at in more detail since. Okay. Hello, Professor Doria. Uh, this is Serkan. <laughs> I'm also a first year PhD student in the program. So I will move on to, the, uh, to our second topic today. Mm -hmm. uh, so the series of questions that follows deals primarily with your 2015 book, Writing on the Image, uh, which brings together selected essays developed over a period of 10 years and is organized under fields of interest, such as elevated vision, cloud architecture, atmospheric politics, uh, interacting with several disciplines. So it's basically related to previous question, actually. Uh, so my question is, how do you connect disciplines in your architectural research approach? Yes, so thanks. Um, so I would say that, um, I must admit, I don't, I don't start off writing something or working on something with uh, an aim to collect, you know, to connect disciplines in a particular way. I, I think what happens is that it, um, it 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 grows out of an exploration of the of the material, um, and I find that um, uh, I mean whether it's through uh, through just the kind of capacity, you know the limitations I have, or whether it's through uh, a kind of um, a habit of working or a certain kind of familiarity. Uh, but I, 
I prefer to, um, and I always say this to PhD students as well, um, I always prefer to think out of, as it were, very, very sort of definite things, very definite um, cultural phenomena, objects, artifacts, manifestations, specific, specific texts. And that's because I, I mean, I suppose in a way I'm always seeking a certain kind of rawness or immediacy or innocence in the encounter with the with the object with the thing that allows questions to be brought to bear upon it i mean even things that we're very familiar with perhaps overly familiar with or at least we think that we're familiar with um that, that allows surprising and um unexpected uh, uh, discussions or arguments to be unfolded or expanded from that. Um, I mean, I find that I'm constantly struck by um, how um, there, there's some, you know, canonic objects, say, in architectural, in architectural history, I mean, things that seem to be returned to time and time again that we feel that there's sort of nothing, there's nothing left to say, nothing left to, to say about them. Um, and I, I'm often struck by uh, the extent to which that kind of perception is linked to certain dominant discourses about the object or about the phenomenon, um, which are so determining that we constantly refine them in the thing again. And those discourses may be, they may be image-based. I mean, there may be ways that things have been photographed. There may be certain canonic interpretations of them. And it's actually surprisingly rare, I think, that one gets um, occasions in which people are writing things and they're actually looking very, very closely um, at what they're writing about. Um, and in a way that's, doing more than participating in a scholarly there's a kind of writing I think that is more concerned with positioning itself within uh, um, an official discourse on the on the object and certifying itself by complying with that uh, and that seems to me not very interesting uh, and so one of the the kinds of scholarship that I enjoy most of all are the kinds that, um, and again, this might just be a kind of sort of propensity that I have, but what I enjoy most of all is that whenever somebody takes something that I thought I knew very well and shows, and shows me just how little I knew about it, I enjoy that much more than somebody who tells me something about, you know, something I didn't know about at all before and I could say, well, that's interesting. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why I enjoy the first case so much is because it also says something about the um, the kind of the deep complexity of things and the lack of our ability ever to fully disclose or fully represent or fully account for something. And it stresses this situational and sort of partial natures of, of any kind of interpretation that we make or any understanding that we develop about anything. I mean, this is a kind of an old critical theory point, 
but 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 I think there's a certain kind of pleasure and a certain kind of freedom that comes from that. So so to get back to your point, um, uh, Sirkin, is that um, the the connection across disciplines really comes from sort of following ideas and questions out of the material, first of all, and where that leads. Uh, and it's often led in quite strange places, sort of places that I hadn't really anticipated. Um, so I often have the I often have the impression that the writing has kind of extended series of reflections upon uh, things which develops a kind of um, the, the writing itself is a sort of, I mean, I, I sometimes literally, I sometimes very strongly have the experience or have the feeling of literally being pulled by the writing in, um, in ways that I hadn't at all, you know, I hadn't at all foreseen no matter how um, kind of carefully I thought I had planned out in advance what I, what I was going to write. So there's a certain, there's a certain interlinkage between the material that you're thinking about, but then also the encoding and interrelationship of that writing, the way that constellation of material is dynamized through the, or is linked together uh, or, or constellated through the process of the, of the writing, um, which I think at the same time is, 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 you know, inevitably has a kind of perf per, uh, performative characteristic. So I would never want to claim that the, I mean, the writing always feels very situational uh, to me as well. And I'm very aware that if I um, approach the same material on another occasion or another, um, uh, at another point, um, the way it you know, it the way the text can manifest or constructed might be, you know, might be, uh, might be quite different. Um, so, so I never want to claim that, um, you know, that 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 this is that these are any way that these should be thought of as dominant or exemplary or uh, interpretations or final words. I mean, they're their contributions to thinking about something, their contributions to um, their, 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 their active forms of engagement with, um, you know, in a kind of process of, in a process of thinking. And I think that goes back to the very early point I make, you know, I was trying to make about architecture as a particular kind of site of thinking as well. So that, you know, although the objects or the artifacts with which the essays begin or that they start to think with, they're not, necessarily you know they're not necessarily architectural things but i think that there's a um that that at the same time they're being thought of out of architecture out of architecture in a way because of the, the way that i'm situated in the kinds of um the kinds of um i you know ideas that i can bring to them thank you um, in the first essay of your book, The King in the City, The Iconology of George IV in Edinburgh, 1822, you reflect on the way in which uh, hierarchical social systems governed by a strong leader, such as a monarch, have the ability to stimulate what you define as people's scopic tribe, being able to catalyze uh, people's attention, sympathy, joy, exaltation for the leader. A tool such as this, that is a strategy of consensus, 
can be used to a different hands uh, and uh, it can even be it can even be weaponized in a society like ours regardless of the uh, political system what is your perspective on the, on this uh, in um, in the in the condition of the current political climate at the international level um yes uh soon that i see um One of the reasons why I wanted to look at this, this particular event, 1822, George IV's visit to Edinburgh, um, is that it's, um, it's a very sort of interesting um, early modern, if we can put it that way, case of the, uh, the kind of orchestration or the theatricalization of, um, uh, of the visit of a particular personage in this, this case, George IV, um, to a, a city and a very calculated uh, a kind of sc scripted organization of the way the figure would move around the city, would both see the city, uh, but uh, and see the population of the city, I mean, see the monuments of the city, see the population of the city, but also that the um, that the population would sort of see see the figure of the king, but also importantly see the figure of the king seeing them. So the person who, I mean, this this seems like a really it seemed to me like a really interesting symptomatic uh, moment, a kind of prehistory of a particular kind of optical event or sp spectacle that. Um, that becomes developed, you know, becomes developed in um, in complex ways in the ensuing years. Uh, one of the things I was interested in looking at this was the um, the way this was theorized at the time through the philosopher Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. Um, so Adam Smith is. I, I suppose most popularly known through the Wealth of Nations as a kind of philosopher of the liberal economy. But this, this earlier book, uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments, is a rather fascinating study of, of sympathy, of, of, uh, of the um, kind of emotion of, of sympathy and the effects of sympathy. Um, and what's very interesting is the way in which Smith um, sort of constructs this around optical conditions which are to do with a kind of reflexivity so it's not just seeing something but it's being aware that one's being seen and um, a reflexive relationship between a viewer and a subject of sympathy and this is the way that the king's uh, visit in into edinburgh you know to to edinburgh is in, is, is interpreted so sir walter scott the novelist um sets up you know um organizes the event and and scripts it and solicits pretty much the entirety of the population of the city to become actors within this event. And what's so, I mean, you can see it's very, very, very clear in Smith is that um, it's not only important that the citizenry, as he saw, saw the king, and this is happening in a very sort of political, in a very specific political context. Um, so it's, it's not only important that the citizenry see the king, but the citizenry see the king seeing them and that they're, as it were, actualized and um, substantiated through the eye of the monarch upon the upon the city. They're renewed 
there's this idea that there, and this this is then this is interpreted through the um, through a Smithian idea of sort of natural sympathy, which is, is attached in splendor into the figure of the king. Now, one, one can see this as a kind of blueprint or a kind of prehistory of um, related events and interactions, uh, which certainly exist, I think, still today. Um, I think we see it very much through uh, the kind of cultic relation that there is to particular individuals, whether that whether those are whether those are celebrities now, uh, and the value of having identities and existences authenticated by their contact with celebrities uh, of being, you know, there's the long history of, you know, collecting autographs, collecting um, artifacts like uh, relics uh, that are divested from celebrities. This is obviously interacts with uh, the kind of complex um, history of media culture. Uh, I think one of the very earliest manifestations or at least, I mean, a really sort of significant early manifestation of the sort of collapse of political and media cultures onto one another. I mean, Scott is already mediating the presence of the king in the city through the scripting of the route that the king takes. But if we fast forward now towards something like the, like John F. Kennedy, John F. John F. Kennedy, for example, the Kennedy assassination, the whole um, interaction of uh, national political culture around a cult figure and media culture at the time, and someone like um, J.G. Ballard's uh, writing, for example, uh, and his thinking about, um, uh, about contemporary subjectivities in relationship to media. Uh, you know, Kennedy in this period for, uh, um, forms um, uh, absolutely a fulcrum for, Ball uh, for Ballard's um, uh, thinking around this. But also I think in figures like Trump, you know, um, we, we can also see the a kind of latter day playing out of the, um, of, of uh, the interaction between um, political office and media cultures and the sense of the passions of a, a crowd or a collective or a group of supporters being directed by the, uh, by the singular figure, by the um, kind of spectacular uh, the figure who's in the position of the monarch anyway, let's put it that way. And I, you know, uh, the the uh, the events of the Capitol building, I suppose, were a very sort of clear example of that recently. So the the that chapter is uh, and the events in Edinburgh in eighteen twenty two in eighteen twenty two are, I think, an interesting sort of prehistory of um, something that is you know very much still with us and that uh, absolutely has a um, you know has a, has a relation to our current political climate. Thank you. Um, my next question is about the essay Cityscape with Ferris Wheel, Chicago, 1893, where you state that the dialogue from the Carol Reed's 1949 film, The Third Man, focusing on the coldness and detachment that the distance from the world causes, is, um, you, you say, rooted in a key ascensional narrative within Western modernity. From this point of view, do you think that 
the empathy-free approach of the man observing the landscape from afar is an inevitable consequence of the objective distance, or rather it is a symptom that underlines modern Western society's indifference toward that, um, which is rooted elsewhere from its centers of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think these two these two possibilities are actually quite closely interrelated. They're not. Um, it's not uh, that that they're entangled. That they that they're uh, um, in some ways that they might be the same thing. So I think I think it turns on. Um, you know, a sort of a failure of recognition in a way, which is a failure of the imaginative actualization of the other as a as a fully imagined, as a fully experienced sub subject, as a fully experienced human other, um, and and I think that sort of touches both on the uh, both on the uh, this kind of opening sequence from the the, the um, it, it's certainly active in forms of um, distanced vision, but I think it's also uh, active in terms of um, the a kind of abstraction that comes from um, that comes from physical and geographical distance, which isn't necessarily uh, which isn't necessarily uh, visual as such, but which is um, uh, uh, which is um, is to do with a um, a kind of distanciation of the other, uh, the, the sort of the non literal presence and sort of recognition of the other. So, so I think the, the kind of problematic turns around the uh, a situation in which uh, we don't have an ethical relation to others because we haven't sort of fully grasped them or actualized them as as a sensitive subjects. I mean, I when I was thinking about this, I was um, um, I wrote a I wrote, I wrote an essay for Cabinet a while ago on it's called Drone Semiosis, and it was about I mean one of the things that it touches on is the um, the way in which um, U.S. military video streams of drone assassinations were uh, sort of fragments of those were placed were, were placed on YouTube uh, to as uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is still done, but there was a period where quite a few were put on through uh, an official um, US military site, and which kind of gathered, they, they were put on the um, sort of a small description and um, kind of comment boxes were opened. But something sort of thinking about these, uh, when I was looking at the, these, something that struck me very much was the way in which the, um, the way in which the sequences of videos were edited or at least trun truncated. So they were typically very, very low, very, very low resolution. Um, they, they were very shortened. So one saw you know, two or three specs or two or three sort of groups of figures, or it's one, presumed they were figures, uh, sort of moving uh, in a particular location or toward a particular point. And then you see the, you see the launch or you see the explosion of the, of the missile that's fired at them and then it sort of finishes. And uh, it's, 
it struck me that the editing of those was uh, kind of um, eloquent in relationship to this uh, lack of, um, it seemed calculated to uh, foreclose the possibility of recognizing uh, any full agency or um, uh, full subjectivity of the sub of the objects of this of the strike. I mean, there was no, there's no narrative. There's no, um, there's no way of contextualizing this within a bigger situation or within a bigger context. There's no life story of the people involved. There's no sense of what they wear. There's no sense of their family relations. There's no sense of their names. There's no sense of who they are, their insurgents, their, um, and the whole sort of staging of, of these assassinations as kind of pleasure videos, videos of consumption of, um, uh, uh, um, you know, seem, seem kind of completely predicated on that sense of a disposable, precarious life, which is disposable because we have no relation to it. We have no, it has no meaning to us. They, they're not imaginatively actualized for us in any way as, as, um, uh, as, as, as living, breathing hum humans. So, um, <clears throat> I think the two points in the question actually <clears throat> sort of kind of collapse onto one another around these around these issues. Thank you. Um, in this MSA, you highlight two antithetical conceptions of the relationship between man and the world observed from afar. A first approach that is cynical and cold, embodied by the characters in the film The Third Man, according to which distance from the observed object reduces empathy towards it and potentially cancels more restraint moral restraints. And then there is a second approach, more idyllic, uh, which uh, thanks to distance cancels ugliness and misery and gives us back a perfect landscape. Could we uh, imagine a third way of relating to the landscape as suggested by the astronomer scientist Carl Edward Sagan, thanks to which uh, distance pushes us to give uh, human vicissitudes their rightful weight? And here I'm referring to an idea expressed by Sagan who in his book, Pale Blue Dot, a vision of the human future in space, states that, quote, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human con conceits than this distance image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the Pale Blue Dot, the only home we have ever known. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting. So, so in the um, in the third man film, the um, the when the figures are in the Ferris wheel, you know, and they're looking down at the city, it's um, I think it's not by chance. It's it's a it's the aftermath of a war landscape. They're looking at they're looking at a kind of destroyed. Uh, it's it's Vienna uh, in the immediate aftermath of the of the, of the Second World War, and the figures that they look down on or that Harry Lyme looks down on are um, they're creatures on this destroyed or dev devastated landscape. And I mean, I suppose it, it that, that echoes a little bit with um, 
reflections that say Antoine de Saint-Exupéry um, made when he was Exupéry. Saint-Exupéry flew, um, he, he flew a, a US uh, aircraft actually uh, during the war. Uh, and he wrote some very interesting reflections on sort of looking down at the, at the landscape below uh, from his position as a war pilot. And at one point, he says he has this feeling of transcendence when he looks down. He says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, what are these to me? They're like protozoa on a microscope slide. I'm a, a savant glacial. I'm a, you know, a cold knower, a scientist. But I look through the pane of my uh, cockpit and they're, uh, and for me, they're war as a laboratory experiment. So this is the coldness and the distanciation that you're, and they're both, it's interesting that they're both war conditions, but I think also they're both conditions that are close to the ground in a way. So the top of the Ferris wheel or the, uh, or the you know, the fighter aircraft that's flying over the, is flying over the battlefield. Um, of course, Nadar, the, the photographer, um, when he's writing the aerial view and he's, he is close to the ground as well. I mean, he's in his, He's in his balloon and he talks about the, you know, the ravishing purifying effect of the view from above of the aerial view. But then when we get to the um, Apollo images, for example, and like the 1972 blue marble Im image, which um, you know, Dennis Cosgrove, I think has written very uh, powerfully about, interestingly about in his book Apollo's Eye. I mean, he was very early so, you know, writing about this and his, his study of the, the meaning of that image and the incorporation of that image in emergent ecological discourses of the time. Um, and Cos Cosgrove, you know, I think it writes well of the, the euphoric dimensions of that, of that image, the, uh, the, the kind of beauty of this, um, of the planet, of the blue planet from, from space, uh, but also the sense of its fragility. So these are some of the first images we have in which the, the contours of the earth are itself uh, inside the frame. You know, they're not close to the ground. They're kind of, we see the, the isolation and develop a, I mean, the image um, conveys a strong sense of the, of the singularity and isolation of the planet in the, the blank um, waste of space and the Earthrise image is probably even stronger, you know, in that regard in showing this because we have the foreground of the inert lunar surface and then the, the resplendent kind of pristine beauty of the, uh, of the, of the Earth rising behind that. And one of the things I think Cosgrove says very well is that, um, also, I mean, part of the response to that image was the way that it seems uh, kind of purged of, of human activity. I mean, we don't see national boundaries. We don't see, we don't see cities in the image. We don't see, maybe if we look hard enough, we see the Great Wall of China or something, I'm not sure, but, but, uh, but there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of, uh, it's, you know, it's the kind of image of a world redeemed of the burden of agonistic human life in a way. And for me, Sagan is actually in that. I mean, I don't think this is, so, so, so what I'm getting to say, to, to say is I think that the, the kind of um, 
uh, you know, Sagan's response to the blue dot is actually sort of on the side of that kind of uh, recognition as well. And for me, it's the way I would tend to read that would be not so much as being sort of part of the third way, but actually being in the sort of purifying um, pool of this um, uh, of uh, of this relationship. So I see it as being more sort of aligned to um, a kind of um, discourse around the resplendence of the aerial lineage that maybe begins with Nadar, but sort of moves through ecological discourse in the, from the late 60s onward. And um, um, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I think this is part of that lineage. Thank you. Um, in the third chapter of your book, Falling on Warsaw, the Shadow of Stalin's Palace of Culture, uh, you mention a passage by Adrian Fortin, which he states that, quote, forgetting has been the problem of the 20th century. Actually, since the second half of the 20th century, we have very often tried to erase the wounds left by wars by destroying the negative symbols of oppression or by uh, rebuilding the positive symbols, such as monuments, squares, churches, and so on, in an attempt to keep our collective identity alive. And this is precisely the case of Warsaw, whose historical center was faithfully reconstructed in the, in the 50s. So my question would be, when the legacy of the past is traumatic and difficult to accept, what could be the most uh, ethically correct approach to relate to it? And uh, specifically, is it preferable to keep the scars of the past since they are part of, of us and uh, represent a warning for the future? Or is it permissible to erase scars to uh, preserve our identity? Yeah, I think, thanks for this question, um, Damiano. I, I, I think it's a complicated question and one that's really difficult to give an overarching, um, a very kind of clear overarching response to. So I think sort of um, whenever we, you know, a question such as, is it permissible to raise scars to preserve, to preserve identity? Um, I think so much turns on the question of who does the erasing. <laughs> you know, and the sort of interests and agencies that uh, that interrelate to that, and um, you know uh, the kinds of political, you know, or ethical or social contestations uh, that develop ar around it. I mean, I think we also have to um, acknowledge that. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of a sense in the question that is it preferable to keep scars of the past. Uh, you say, since they're part of us as well and represent a warning for the future, or is it permissible to erase scars to preserve identity? Um, so I think one of the things we have to articulate as well is that it's sometimes our identity is formed through the scar or through the trauma. It is, you know, as um, you know, sufferers of this in a way that kind of binds us together and gives us this uh, attachment or this or this relation, and that can be, that can take kind of pathological formulations. I mean, to a kind of culture that understands itself as kind of an, an, an exemplary kind of victim culture is is it's a is a problematic one. It's very difficult to um, to uh, I mean that that can um, transform. Uh, very easily into a kind of an emblematic culture of suffering, which claims a kind of privilege over and above other, you know, other uh, other victims or other sufferers. So, uh, 
you know, I, I, I what I would say, I, I can't draw a yes or no about this, but I would say that these questions have to be part of an ongoing cultural discussion or dialogue, which does not foreclose relations with participants and groups that are part of that dialogue. I mean, it forms the kind of, otherwise it becomes oppressive. Uh, it becomes uh, uh, either by, through kind of forms of demand that, uh, I mean, for, for me, in a way this perhaps sort of links a little bit to the kind of question of the sort of things we're saying around neutrality and a disciplinarity. Uh, cultural imperatives that say you must do this this is your this is your destiny this is your identity this is what you are this is what you must be this is what you will be in future are are carceral i think i mean they're closed they're um they're you know absolutely um uh kind of forms of subjectification and subjugation and uh, and i think that these these questions that you raise are important ones but they have to be uh part of the living it's not the it's not the the kind of resolution of them that uh, you know and the 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 closing that's important i think but the way that they form part of the ongoing sort of life and understanding of a of a uh of a of a cultural formation, whatever that is, whether we understand that in terms of a municipality or a city or a nation or a or a kind of broader um, um, group group. So um, yeah, uh, I mean it's interesting <laughs> when you talk about you say the historical center of Warsaw was faithfully reconstructed. Um, it's interesting that alone because there's quite a lot of um, contestation around how faithful that reconstruction was. Um, although it was certainly very, uh, it was certainly a very important uh, symbolic act of national identity after the, you know, after the appalling devastation of the of the war and the system, you know, the systematic destruction of the city. Mm. Thank you. Uh, reading the the same essay, I was struck by the association between the palace of culture and the finger, the phallic shape, the silhouette of Stalin, which are uh, images often associated with authority, power, and the cult of personality. Uh, architecture in this case becomes an instrument of pow power, which is capable of subjugating the masses and uh, imposing a dominant thought. Our history is full of examples of architecture of power expressed through grandiose buildings of colossal dimensions designed to enhance the often oppressive and violent ruling class. This is the case not only of artifacts that may be perceived by modern democratic society, societies to have a negative aura, such as Stalin's palace, but also buildings that are generally considered absolute masterpieces of art, such as the pyramids or the imperial forums and so on. Uh, what leads us to attribute these buildings to one or the other category? Yeah, I think that's, a, yeah, again, a good and interesting question. Um, I think what I would say that uh, or I, I would tend to feel that such attributions are based on on living experience, on the kind of continuity of the experience of the uh, of the of the of the context and processes through which those 
buildings are realized and what they represent and and you know and the relation the ongoing relationship of the building of the building to that i mean we don't i think directly we don't immediately have this um emotional response to the pyramids as vast monuments to slavery because of the um you know because the living experience of that is is uh, you know is broken as it were i mean we can reconstruct it and we can intellectually reconstruct it but we can't um you know uh the relationship between that and between the you know the generation of solidarity in poland for example at the you know um around 19 uh, around 1989 and the um the kind of breakdown of the the eastern bloc uh the the animus and the the uh the life experience of that generation in relationship to um you know to that to that to that context to the eastern bloc and to the um to to the to the experience of life in the context of that regime is is yeah it's totally it's totally different to looking at the um uh, you know looking at something like looking at something like the pyramids i mean it's interesting actually um one of the things that that essay touches on a little bit at the end is uh the way in which i mean i could see the way in which within a generation uh the the attitude to that building was sort of starting to change a little bit it's very, very again it's very striking the um the kind of violent um completely anti you know the strong strong kind of visceral reaction uh to to the commun you know to the to the history of the regime by the solidarity uh generation the the, the total desire almost to really sort of proclaim the horrors of that and to wipe away the the, the traces are quite different from the uh from the children of those generation uh so you know so some of the artworks like the artwork that's in the cover of the book by carolina Bruguba, uh which shows the shadow of the palace of culture being sort of carried away i mean they there's a kind of playing with the form and a sort of humorous uh interaction with it and a kind of desire to come to a kind of accommodation with it in a way that was i think totally unthinkable to the to the generation before that and i think that's shows or foregrounds this this kind of point about the um way the relation with these things and uh, with these objects shifts as life experience shifts now whether one sees that as a failure of memory or whether one sees that as a kind of release from the burden of having to remember is another question and again i would find it very hard to adjudicate uh on on that thank you my last question for now, okay? <laughs> so, uh, in the in the essay "Adventures on the Vertical: From the New Vision to Power of Ten, you suggest that with the advent of modernity, an epistemic of disappearance has taken hold, involving the um, reduction of the body to a, a mobile high, capable of scrutinizing everything from above, imposing what a Cayon calls uh, the mastery of space by vision. 
my question is um, is this then the reality to which we are destined or uh, we can counter in some way the hegemony of vision and regain a full sensorial and bodily engagement? Yeah, so what I would say is that this, um, that this, this kind of transcendence of vision or this hegemony, as you say, or, or, or this, uh, this fantasy or dream of a vision released from bodily conditions um i mean it's something that i think is is uh it's, it's a you know it's certainly a, a fantasy which is or a, an ideal uh which has existed within within modernity and within certain ideas of of knowledge construction and of it's, it's a kind of i mean in certain ways it's a certain kind of aesthetic idea but it's also an epistemological idea. I was thinking of um, also, you know, Alberti's famous, um, the emblem of the winged eye, of the eye that's kind of detached from the body, but it's given wings. Um, but, um, but it's never absolute, of course, and it, it's always, um, <laughs> you know, it's always restrained or received or conditioned uh, by the body. It never fully escapes that and I think it's the sort of complications of that that then become rather you know rather rather interesting I mean I was reminded a bit of um you know uh, Michelle Michelle de Certeau's uh, Practice of Everyday Life so very kind of famous um text which you know circulates widely within architectural circles but at the beginning of that book you know he, he um, he dramatizes the relationship between the elevated eye and between the, you know, in which the, the elevated position in which the eye has a kind of uh, privilege and dominance, and then the, the close to the ground activities of everyday life, the kind of tactical uh, and tactile uh, relations with the, with the street and then, and, you know, and then the and the negotiation. So imagine it's going to the top of the World Trade Center before the for the attack, obviously. Um, and uh, and he uses this phrase that the you know this building represents the you know dream that sort of Western dream of of the pure optical point of the the point of optical transcendence. And I mean, there's there's an essay. It's online actually. It's called the Aerial View: Notes for a Cultural History, and I, I write a little bit about that in this. And it, one of the things that strikes me was how was how inappropriate, in a way, that building is to exemplify that that point. So I had I have this feeling. I mean, you may not agree with me, but I have this feeling that uh, you know, for Disserto, it's it's enough to go up. It's enough to go up to the highest building in the world at the time to make this point. And but this is this is an example, I think, of what I would say of um, the complications whenever you look a little bit harder. So Sirto uh, wants to sort of talk about it as the, the sort of dream of the singular transcendent optical point. But in a way, that's exactly what that building doesn't do because it wasn't a building. It was buildings, and every sort of position in it was replicated by. Uh, parallel position in the other construction. So one was never in an absolutely singular, singular or privileged position. It also meant that the uh, rather than the uh, rather than the ideal of the elevated, uh, you know, transcendent disembodied position, one was always sort of highly 
<clears throat> embodied because of the, uh, the kind of blocking of the opticality of the position because of the doubling of the tar on the other side. And so, uh, you know, I think there's an interesting kind of conundrum in that in that building, which which comes from the you know comes from its twinness, comes from the doubleness. Um, so I'm just sort of saying that because I think that to um, embodiment is always there, and even with uh, a kind of cinematic construction like powers of ten, it's always um, uh, it's always received in in some sense in an embodied way and sort of media, mediated through particular kinds of apparatuses. Um, it's also, I think, interesting that the, um, the, the historical responses to Powers of Ten as a construction uh, by, so writing on it by people like Paul, Paul Schrader, the scriptwriter and film critic, um, there was always from the start this sense of uh, uh, of movement and travel, and uh, actually a kind of um, um, engagement with the body. I mean, this was something that struck. Uh, I'm not sure if we feel it in the same way now, but this was this is certainly something that struck early viewers of the building. That in a strange way, this um, this experience of disembodiment implicated the body in a way that other films didn't through the sort of visceral sense of movement and uh, you know, descent and sudden acceleration and so. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Professor Dorian. So uh, in the chapter, uh, the way the world sees London, you state that London Eye facilitates a particular kind of optical performance. Uh, which includes visual purification associated with the aerial view. So what forms of potential engagement with the city of London does this aerial view provide? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, I think the, the attraction is constructed to sort of comp to comply with a kind of official touristic, er, you know, um, image discourse about, about London. Um, and um, in a way, visitors um, pay to experience that, but also to to be active active performers in that. It's what their uh, it's what their trip is expected to to produce and is staged that way. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I wouldn't want to say that this is. Uh, this is certainly what is promoted, but I'm not sure that it's ever it ever totally exhausts the um, the the possibilities of uh, of the construction. Um, I'm not sure what I mean. I, do, I don't particularly have um, strong alternatives for other kinds of performativities that might sort of exist within this. Uh, structure in relationship to this but um, um, you know and maybe those have to be discovered uh, in a in a way and it would be interesting to it would be interesting to you know to try to sort of elaborate what those might might be I was I mean thinking about the question I'm, I'm kind of struck a little bit by how 
impermeable that Undeni has been to other kinds of narratives or relations. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm unaware of any artworks, for example, that have used it in a partic kind of particularly interesting way or, uh, or, or fictional, you know, it's, it's appearances in, in kind of, you know, fictional narratives or filmic narratives. It seems, um, it seems very, it, it certainly become a, it becomes a kind of focus of certain kind of public rituals and celebrations, such as the, you know, the new year or fireworks displays or things like this. And it's, uh, it's a kind of, you know, in certain sense of a you know successful tourist object, but it seems quite, um, quite kind of limited and captured within those particular uses and conditions. Thank you, thank you. So, in another article at the same book, uh, Utopia on Ice, uh, you list several attempts using weather as a weaponized element. Uh, one remarkable example you give is uh, the weather modification techniques implemented in Vietnam by the U.S. Army. Uh, so what do you, do you think of using natural resources as tools of warfare? Mm. Well, I think it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's appalling. I think we should be appalled uh, by it. Uh, I mean, certainly if we're committed to non-violence, uh, as I think we we ought to be um, the the kind of conscription of the kind of conditions of life as uh, the weaponization of that and the conscription of that for military interests. I think is is one of the most fateful um, developments of modern technology and 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 our contemporary our contemporary situation. Um, I think more broadly, I would say that this is, you know, and the SE tries to talk about this a little bit, that this is not just, um, you know, that, that this is, that this is congruent with sort of broader uh, sort of military and business interests and scientific interests in relationship to, um, to kind of weather control and geoengineering, which I think, again, um, a kind of um, uh, currency and even a plausibility that they didn't, uh, you know, that they didn't have even ten years ago uh, because of the uh, because of the because of the climate crisis. Um, I know that uh, Elizabeth Colbert, I think, has, has just published a book on this, which sounds interesting, which I haven't had a chance to look at yet. Um, but this, this feeling of being, um, you know, the, the question of, so, so one of the things that the, the, the kind of concerns that, uh, well, there are all kinds of concerns that geoengineering projects raise, but one of them might be around exclusion and de depletion. So in a sense, who is sort of left out of the remediated world or the remediated situation? At whose expense do we get more rainfall or less rainfall? Uh, the, the history of, of cloud seeding, which is um, one of the, you know, I think the example you refer to, Sir, Sir Khan, this doesn't, I mean, cloud seeding doesn't produce more moisture in the air, it just encourages it to precipitate at particular points. So it takes, um, it takes moisture, it takes water out of the system somewhere else. And so there's a, um, 
so the benefit that we gain is the depletion somewhere else and is the um and the the uh when local interests and specific interests can proliferate within a global system um that seems to become that seems to be very problematic in all kinds of ways and yeah so so i think that's that's one of the rather sort of interesting but also rather troubling thing you know things about the the point that you bring up about the um the 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 intersection of regimes of sort of weather or climate control both with specific sort of business national political interests but also um specific military interests as as well and we know that the we know that this is a sort of complex that is is kind of tightly intertwined and relies on um i mean the the elements you know the elements of that complex rely closely upon one another so um yeah i think and as i said yes i think there's something that's um kind of particularly there's a certain cultural history there that um thinks of air in terms of freedom and i think this gives a particular cultural poignancy to the sense of air is something that's enchained in some way that's whether it's kind of technologically controlled uh technologically um restricted or distributed or um so i think the the possibility of seeing all the inequalities and violences of our global political and economic system reproduced in a climatological sense is uh, an appalling prospect. Thank you. Uh, so in separate articles, uh, you discuss gargantuan dome structures in two distant locations. Uh, the first one is in Sunny Mountain Sky Dome in Dubai, and the second one in Millennium Dome in London. So what are the similarities and differences between these two structures in terms of spatial and political dimensions that they represent? Yeah, so um, so both are attra attractions. You know, they're attractions which uh, they're uh, uh, attractions that are installed in a kind of global tourist economy and they address that. Uh, I suppose we would say that one is about the the construction of a kind of climatic condition, uh, the the, ski, the the Dubai ski dome, and the other sits probably more in a lineage of, of exhibitionary uh, architectures, and that that conditions the so they're both domes in a way, but the the Millennium Dome isn't. I mean, structurally, it's not a dome from an architectural point of view. It's not a dome. It's it's a tent. It's a stretched fabric structure. It looks like a dome, but it's dome shaped. But it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not um, uh, uh, the way that um, uh, the way it works structurally is is not a uh, is is not a dome. Um, whereas the, I mean, the ski dome, ski dome in Dubai. First sight, it looks like a. Um, it looks like it, it sits in the kind of lineage of geodesic structures. Of the, you know, that it's part of the. Trajectory of Fuller and the, um, the the idea of a little large scale encapsulation of the domes, but it's not a, it's actually not a geodesic structure, but it's um, 
but anyway, it's about a kind of it's about a kind of atmospheric encapsulation, in a way that the Millennium uh, Dome is is not. But thinking a little bit more kind of deeply about your question, something that strikes me is that um, kind of an interesting historical point of convergence between the two might be the uh, might be the Great Exhibition, the Crystal Palace, the Great Exhibition Hall of 1851 in 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 London, which was both exhibitionary structure, I mean the first world exhibitionary structure, uh, and uh, also uh, also a hothouse, a kind of climatological environment, coming as it did directly out of the development of botanical glass houses, particularly through Joseph Paxton and the Duke of Devonshire's um, state at Chats, Chatsworth. So it's kind of an interesting point in a way that although we, you know, saying one's an exhibition, I mean, saying that the Millennium Dome is an exhibitionary structure and saying that the Ski Dome is a kind of cl simulated climatological zone or environment, they, it's interesting that they might be both taken to have a common genealogy in this. Um, I mean, I don't know, if you're familiar with Peter Schlotterdijk's work, but he says some very interesting things about the Crystal Palace, and the Crystal Palace has a um, has a, a really a key. It's a key point in his thinking and his whole idea of cultures as um, as spaces of cultivation, as as kind of um, spaces of um, uh, or zones of uh, group cultivation and development, which is in part climatological as well, is very, very um, de dependent in a way on the, or re relates very much to the hothouse motif. So even when he's thinking, I mean, I was just, just thinking out loud now in his, um, some of you might know the SE Atmospheric Politics, which is published in the Atmospheres of Democracy book that Bruno Latour made. So he's actually he's talking about the Greek polis in that as a, a in the emergence of of democracy, um, but he begins with the hothouse. He begins with the nineteenth-century um, botanical encapsulated glass house, which you know he argues exists as a kind of space of hospitality to flora, to to living things that come from elsewhere and can become uh, received in the space. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how well the metaphor holds because these are, in a sense, ripped out of their context by processes of collecting, and he doesn't really talk about the background of colonialism in relationship to this. Um, but, um, but anyway, I mean, there, uh, there is a, um, you know, whether or not these are spaces of hospitality, there is a, um, or, you know, enforced incarceration, there is a, um, there is a sort of, uh, uh, a very clear uh, relationship between that idea of climate, climatic encapsulation, and the idea of of of, uh, of 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 cultural development that he that he develops. Hmm. Hey, um, I have some questions. Uh, in the chapter on Google Earth, you refer to resolution as a political and commercial tool in Google Earth. Given the concept of the digital first world, can you expand expound upon the, the term third world low res and how it may contribute to the, the rich poor divide? As architects, 
uh, are becoming more reliant on Google mapping as a tool for site analysis based on, on this trend, do you see a growing divide in architectural pedagogy based on socioeconomic conditions? Yeah, okay, thanks, Warren. So, um, yeah, there are various strands to this question. Uh, the first, the first uh, about this, this phrase, third world low, low res. So this is when I was um, working on this, this piece on Google Earth. This, is, this was uh, a term that I had come across in a number of locations I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, at the time, um, I guess I saw the time of the writing of the essay, I saw it mainly as a, a symbolic issue. Um, so you'll know that one of the things I argue in the essay is that the, the, the scale of resolution differentials as they emerged within Google Earth, uh, became, I mean, the, I mean, it's claim that they that they become a map of um, points of Western, of specifically of Western interest. So those areas, uh, those kind of global areas that were appearing in particularly high resolution, um, were filtered through uh, to the Google interface through uh, a variety of, of sources, um, some which were to do with, um, you know, sort of national projects of mapping, some were to do with sort of specifically business, uh, to do with, you know, real estate interests and things like this. Some were also to do with military um, projects or military concerns that, so we had areas of high resolution of particular areas that were taken and, ever, and then whenever they lost their classified strategic value, they were released and they were able to be used in Google Earth. So you have phenomena like at one point uh, around the Kashmiri border, which is a sort of an area of um, generally a very low resolution. There was a strip that suddenly appeared in Google Earth of ultra high resolution, which turned out to be um, uh, had come out of a specific commission that had been given by the US military to develop a high uh, 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 detailed sur surveillance imagery of this. And then several months later, it was released and um, uh, Google were able to use it. So this seemed to be a, um, uh, a kind of map of power in a way, uh, map of sort of military, but also economic power and economic interests. And so, uh, you know, third world or low res was in a way to be outside that area of interest, to be off the scale, to be um, uh, uh, not to, not to be, not to be imaged in this, and in a sense, not to be important. I mean, not to, I think that was also one of the, that there was this, um, there was the sense that the Google interface was also about the representation of the relative importance and the relative global importance of particular locations. It was interesting, the sorts of complaints that were made to Google about slowness of refreshing images. I mean, there's one I think that I mentioned where 
the city of Liverpool in England was uh, it was supposed to be European culture of capital, European capital of culture or something like that, and uh, they had all these um, building projects that were underway uh, for this uh, for this for this event for this status, and they didn't like the fact that there was a very uh, slow upload time that the images weren't being refreshed, and so all these places to look like building sites rather than the you know fully um, uh, kind of fully realized constructions. But that sense of of, um, of being um, unseen, as it were, or um, of having this low res condition, I think was it's it's, it's uh, a representational issue, not just in terms of the representation of the interface, but in the sense of this a representation of the place as well so so that 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 struck me as i thought was being um important and and yes i mean i i can absolutely see how um in some ways that that could kind of reinforce existing differentials and disparities whenever you know whenever the integration of particular digital processes or di digital platforms become relatively ubiquitous or become central to particular kind of practices as well. On the, on the other hand, it may be, you know, there may be a certain counter argument that it gives a certain kind of protection as well, or that um, uh, good arguments about the benefits of not being seen in Google Earth in a way as well. Um, I think this issue of the, uh, the kind of growing divide in, in, in architectural pedagogy based on social economic conditions is um, yeah I think is is it yeah is an important point um, I mean one of the ways I suppose that this comes home to me most clearly is um, I, I mean thinking about architecture and thinking about architectural pedagogy and the kind of global so the idea of global schools of architecture or of certain um, uh, universities or centers or areas of study. I mean, I do think there are major issues around the kind of accru accrual of power by uh, particular institutions and sort of highly, uh, which, is, which is highly s symbolic in terms of the, um, the kinds of, um, you know the, the sort of cultural capital that um, study in a place or a particular lo location um, confers to someone who returns to a location from this center. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that the whole global map of architectural education is very distorted. I think in many ways at the moment. Yeah, thank you. In the same chapter, there is a discussion on Google's power to augment our brains. In your opinion, how could or has this augmentation shaped the built environment? In the quote, realm of an intimate pow personal power, uh, power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested, end quote. There is a sense that the architect's role is at risk. Is the architectural apprenticeship and academics destined to become obsolete 
and replaced by a Google application? Will creativity survive technology? Yes, yeah, so, so the quote is from Stuart, Stuart Brand, you know, I think is, uh, uh, it's kind of emblematic of this, this sort of, you know, whole, whole earth catalog thinking of the, the period on, you know, self-realization and individualism, et cetera. Um, I, uh, I mean, the, the question, will creativity survive technology, I think is, um, so I think what that really asks is, I mean, I think there, there are two things that that brings up. Uh, so I think it's really asking, will, will human creativity uh, survive? And, and I guess to the other side of that, the question of begs is, will technology itself become creative in the sense that we understand whenever we talk about human creativity? Uh, so will it become inventive, as it were? Will it become um, uh, uh, non-reliant on uh, you know, autonomous in that regard in terms of the generation of what we might describe as ideas? Um, so, I, um, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know how to predict that. I mean, obviously there's much, um, contemporary speculation around AI, around artificial intelligence and what the sort of future of that is. And there are different kinds of evolutionary speculation around this. Uh, James Lovelock's recent book, uh, most recent book sort of imagines a kind of future in which the, um, you know, the answer to the climate crisis is AI because the evolution uh, of these machines become uh, I mean his idea is that they become it's the it's a little bit it seems a little bit of return to the sort of watched over by machines of loving grace idea which we kind of saw in the um, in the in the in the in the 60s and 70s um, so the idea that you know AI in an evolutionary sense actually you know surpasses the you know humanity um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, who knows? I don't know. I don't. I don't really. I don't really know how to uh, respond in a really sort of intelligible way to that. I mean, I suppose the only thing that I would say is that um, it strikes me historically that uh, most of the, or a lot of the, or some of the most interesting and kind of creative responses to technology has been where um, there's been actions that we might has, have been based around um, what we might describe as misuses of, of technology. So um, ways of operating between in particular contexts and technologically augmented or defined contexts where we're not so much operators of a kind of given system or instruments within a given system as uh, agents that are working with effects of a system that um, and placing value on phenomena and effects that switch uh, the ascription of value from the outputs, if we can put it that way, uh, in which we were, you know, that the that the technology was designed for, which the technology, you know, the technology which you know was produced for. So we have something and we use it for 
you know, particular purpose. But then we find it also has this effect and does this. So I, I have this feeling that maybe that the, in terms of the, uh, you know, how we might understand create creativity or creative action in relationship to the development of the technology might be, uh, two technology might be at its, at its edges and finding more tra more transversal um, ways of interacting with it. Um, finding um, uh, sort of unexpected and unscripted uh, relations to the things. That's where humanity is, I guess, <laughs> for me. Thank you. Um, next question. In, in the chapter, Transcoded Indexicality, you discuss the relationship between image and trust. In architectural practice, there is a, a propensity to use tools like Photoshop to make uh, to, to make alterations of images, both for concept and post-construction. As an architect, at what point does ethics play a role in the production of these images? Additionally, it is getting increasingly difficult to differentiate between iconic photorealistic representations and quote, real images uh, taken with, without alteration. Should mechanisms be in place to differentiate a, uh, a rendering from a real image? Could, uh, could we or should we achieve in, in indexical authenticity in today's digital realm? Yeah, um, so, uh, so regarding the first question, um, you know, what point does ethics play a role in the production of these images? Um, I mean, certainly one of the things that makes me th think of are, I mean, it makes me think of certain kinds of practices which, um, are resistant to make images at all, uh, or at least make certain kinds of images in relationship to um, presenting or thinking about the project or articulating it to, um, you know, to a to a commissioner or to a client or commissioning body. So I think of someone like Cedric Price actually here a little bit, you know, and the um, um, Cedric Price is sort of strong, strong, uh, res you know, resistance to the um, to the entrapment of the project in the image in a kind of fixed, I mean, it's partly to do with Price's thinking about, about, about futurity and about the open, you know, the openness of the future, but it's also, I think, about his, um, to do with his thinking about architecture as a kind of tool, as a kind of tooling, and as a kind of something that um, facilitates an active engagement uh, with the, with the users. Um, so that'll be one way, I guess, of thinking about the, I mean, not, not just a, an ethics of the production of certain kinds of imagery or the veracity of the image that's produced, but actually an ethical thinking about the, the role and agency and action of images at all, you know, within the, uh, within the process of architectural deliberation and development and consent. Uh, the other thing I, I, I think I would, tend to sort of um, kind of switch the, the terms perhaps of the rest of the question slightly, um, Warren, because the problematic that seems to be set up here, and I can understand that coming from the transcoded indexicality paper, but it seems to be about the um, kind of compliance of the, or the, the veracity of, of some sort of image in relationship to something that's out there. Um, 
but it seems to me that one of the things that's happening in architectural production now is that uh, it's almost as if the terms have been reversed and that the architecture is being produced increasingly in order to kind of mimic and replicate the effects that we can have on screen through uh, rendering and digital technologies. And it, it reminds me actually of, I was talking to a friend recently who was uh, taken around a series of buildings in London um, by sort of another friend who was working in the office, I mean, quite a major practice in, in London. And uh, as she was going around, um, she was, I mean, the person who was working in the practice was saying, um, was equating the particular materials and the constructional effects that were produced to to rent to specific rendering techniques. So we produce this in the screen, and then this is kind of projected out. This is how we translate this into construction. So it's not so much that what was out there is being faithfully reproduced in the image, but the image is being faithfully reproduced by what's out there through this kind of you know. Um, a process of a kind of architectural image, image construction. So on one hand, this is a kind of um, quite a kind of radical flattening in the sense of the whole sort of architectural, you know, the kind of complexity and the multiplicity of architecture. But on on the other hand, I mean, I I, I think at the same time, um, you know, that's it's e it's easy to be to absolute about this and also to kind of realize that there are um, just the the range of complex you know the range of complexity of considerations and discourses that are around major you know kind of commissioned in contemporary buildings around that you know whether that's to do with um, uh, I mean certainly kind of cultural institutions for example take a major interest in what their buildings look like, but they're also very um, careful about how they work, you know, and how they work for curators or how they work for exhibition and display and how. Uh, so I wouldn't want to, I mean, I wouldn't want to be too, um, I wouldn't want to sort of turn this into a kind of caricature, but at, this, but at the same time, I think there's no doubt that, let's see if we can put it this way, that the, the kind of production of architectural effects are being led through rendering, I mean, you know, visual optical effects are being led through rendering and screen technologies and are being um you know transposed and translated uh in a, uh there's a kind of search for analogs uh to to that so the rendering is no longer you know it's no longer a kind of secondary depiction of some situation that's out there, but it's a kind of primary depiction that the uh, that the architecture is secondary to. Okay, thank you. Um, my final question is a little bit of a circle back. In the in the chapter a disciplinar disciplinarity and architecture, you introduced the term a disciplinarity, which we discussed earlier, as a way of architecture to not be bound by other discipline disciplinary structures. Giving, giving way to neutrality. Does a, a disciplinarity relate to phenomenology? And if so, how? How do we envision uh, architectural pedagogy within an a disciplinarity framework? 
Um, yeah, so, um, so as I was saying earlier, um, the idea around a disciplinar around a disciplinarity really um, kind of probably emerges more from kind of semiotic thinking as a as a semiotic condition to you know to to begin with. Although I think um, I mean it's interesting that you mentioned phenomenology because at the at the same time um, I think there are things that we sense and things that we experience that that displaces in a bodily and experiential way and that we, we experience as uh, as neutralizing. And I think, for example, things like, uh, you know, cloud or mist uh, have often appeared in this way in um, particular cultural phenomena or at times certain sound conditions have uh, been sort of ex experiences neutralizing uh, as well. I mean, I think sort of anything it's to do with a kind of disorientation in which we um, lose the ability to kind of ascribe positive relations uh, uh, to things or positive identity relations or to def you know, definitively say what something is um, are conditions where we experience a, a, a kind of neutrality and neutralizing effect. And, and often these can be um, uh, Phenomenological. I mean, they may be path. They may be pathological at times, such as actually the loss of, the loss of the loss of senses, um, uh, and you know, there's interesting and complicated history about that. Um, in terms of pedagogy, I mean, I, th I think your question makes me think of. Um, um, I mean, on one hand, I would say it, it's about the, it's about the not yet. It's about the invitation of a kind of openness within within pedagogy. Uh, but I think one of the ways that I've more sort of explicitly tried to address this is through through some writing on the term interesting uh, and the kind of value of the, the term interesting in, in pedagogical um, discourse and in, in educational discourse. And I, I've, I've written explicitly on this. Um, there's a Nessian uh, architecture and culture on this if you're, if you're, if you're interested. Um, Sorry, no, no pun intended, but um, um, but um, um, I kind of draw I draw on Sian Ngai's kind of excellent work on uh, there's a book called Our Aesthetic Categories, which I think is a, a I mean a wonderful um, study of of a number of terms, um, but I think one of the things that we can say about the word interesting is that, I mean, there, there, there are different ways in which it can be used, but certainly one of the ways in which it can be used is when we're confronted with work that we feel posits a certain challenge and is relevant to a framework that we are question that we're addressing, but we're not yet sure what to say about this work. We're not yet, and perhaps we're not yet sure about it because it, it addresses the framework in a way that doesn't straightforwardly comply with the expectations of the framework. So it doesn't sort of simply sit within it in the way that we can say that this work is, is good or bad or valuable or not valuable in relationship to the protocols by which we would normally um, assess it. Interesting is to say that, is to register that there is, that there's something here, but we don't yet have the capacity to articulate that. And so it introduces a kind of um, struggle to articulate 
a struggle to kind of bring to language in a way or to bring to reflection. And I think that is absolutely one definition of what the neutral is, the, you know, the not yet, the what we cannot yet put words to. It comes close to, I don't know if you know Jean-Francois Lyotard's notion of the different. It, it, it comes close to that. And I think it's also close to, um, I mean, there's a beautiful section in Roland Barthes' um, neutral book, a book on, uh, on, on the neutral, where he talks about uh, Hieronymus Bosch's uh, triptych, the Garden of Earthly Delights. And he contrasts the interior of the triptych with the, with the exterior. And so the interior is the kind of brightly colored or painted um, panels. Uh, when the, uh, the doors of the triptych are closed, there's a, a, a grisaille painting, so a, a, a gray, a painting in grays of the globe with the worlds inert, inert but sort of coming into differentiation. And there, there's an interesting section in Bart on this one. He reflects on this and he he talks about the shimmer. He says that there's the beginning of differentiation here, but we're not yet sure what it will become. It's the, and he says the neutral is the shimmer, the kind of struggle, the beginnings of, um, of coming into coming to form, the, the uh, a kind of force or emergence, imminence, I guess, uh, you know, within, within this. And I think that's, I think that's, that's close to what we, what we feel when we say something something is, is, is interesting, like, I mean, really interesting. I don't, I don't mean interesting as what we might say, well, I don't want to think about it anymore, you know, or, or as a kind of, um, I'm not interested in talking to you, uh, kind of interesting. But something we say, well, this is really interesting. This is, uh, th there's something, we have this uh, sense of imminence. We have this sense of, of, um, of maybe a pressure that the work puts on the way that we set up the project. Uh, Somehow it, it's a response to a project, but it challenges the parameters and protocols of that project at the same time. And that's when I think, and that, uh, I mean, for, for me, that's the most, um, as, a, as a kind of teacher and educator, or as I tend not to use the word teacher, but as someone who's an interlocutor with students and a participant in their work uh, and in dialogue with them, work like that is um, simultaneously the most, challenging but the strongest I think as well and so we have this sort of slightly paradoxical situation of a strong neutrality of a of a kind of um, uh, position where we can't simply ascribe an identity or a value to something but at the same time we have this uh, sense of a challenge that we are presented with through the work so that I think that's how I would talk about here I am again so um, to conclude the interview, uh, I would like to make a reflection on your book, which will lead to my last question. So the essays of your book open with a reference to visual elements, which despite being apparently secondary, reveal a great expressive power. In fact, they allow to start a deep reflection on themes related to architecture in the city, which take their place within the larger question of the politics of representation. So what is the relevance of the politics of representation today? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's everywhere. Uh, I think it's an, in, you know, an inescapable uh, question. Um, I think it's something that we confront all the time. I mean, all the information we have about anything is mediated, it's represented to us in some way. 
I mean, it's it's the it's what it's what surrounds us. It's and the the trust or otherwise that we have in these representations that we exist within. You know, conditions our actions and shapes shapes how we act. Uh, I think I think it's inescapable. It's to do what's you know the question of the politics of representation is in, entails asking what you know motivates the interests and what the motivations are specific forms of representation you know how how representation how they work how they circulate the effects that they produce um i think also as forms of mediation have become more generalized complex sort of inescapable effects of social media etc uh i think they they just they as a as a topic as as, as you know as as the topic in a way that we kind of constantly have to think about and return to. I think it's, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's nothing that escapes it, I, I, uh, I think. Um, I think the only other thing I would say, Damiano, is that, um, you know, it's interesting that you say, um, you, you use this term, despite, you know, um, despite being apparently secondary, uh, and I think you're careful, you, you phrase this very well because you say apparently secondary at the same time. Um, I, I think one of the things I would say is that um, that I think these things are sort of good good to think or um, productive to think because of their secondariness, if I can, if I can put it that way, that um, because they're, uh, something that's secondary is not the thing itself, but it's some mediation of the thing something that's it's a thing presented in some way it's a thing that's sub, subject to some transformation and so we're kind of reading it but we're reading the transformation at the same time and reading what the what's at stake within that and so the secondary i think becomes primary or becomes difficult difficult to say whether i mean in a sense the you know the the, the, the terms sort of lose their um the, the traditional meaning, I think that they would have a little bit, and we're not sure if if they're actually tertiary or quaternary or you know whatever. I mean, they're part of complex relays, and um, but that's their. I mean, that's their value as objects of study as well. It's got. It's become nighttime where you, where, where, where you are. We've talked for so long. Well, thank you so much, yeah, for taking on the the whole agenda you know, and uh, I guess answering all the questions of the students and providing us insights into the program and, and your book as well. Uh, we are really appreciative. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and really interesting questions. Thank you. Um, yeah, I thought, the, yeah, the students and I, I guess, really enjoyed reading your, reading your book. I hope we'll have a chance, you know, in the future to have you in person at the school, maybe at some of our events when the students present their work uh, maybe as a critical respondent, it would be wonderful to have you at Carlton. Lovely, thank you. I'd, yeah, I'd be delighted. You know. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Good luck with your work, everybody. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you.